If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Tomorrow, the 15th of August, is the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, when Japan surrendered and effectively brought the Second World War to an end. In our September issue, we explore the war against Japan with a piece on how the British and Commonwealth forces turned defeat into victory in the East. That piece is written by Dr Jonathan Fennell of King's College London, who's the author of the award-winning book Fighting the People's War. In today's episode, he expanded on this subject in an interview with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. We're now approaching the 75th anniversary of VJ Day. And here on the magazine, we've had quite a lot of letters from readers concerned that we're not going to cover this in quite the same way that we did as VE Day. So do you think that this is still a forgotten war in Britain, at least? I mean, perhaps in the public consciousness... Scholars have been spending increasing amounts of time looking at the war in the East. And in fact, you you could really argue that some of the most sophisticated, reflective, insightful works on the British and Commonwealth armies and other parts of the British and Commonwealth war effort are on the topic of the wars in Burma, the wars in Malaya, what the war did to individuals in those places, decolonization in the East as a consequence of the war. So maybe there's a disconnect between the the scholarly community and the public. But certainly, I mean, if the public wants to read good books on British history in the middle of the 20th century, there's no better place to look than British and Commonwealth armies or Britain and Commonwealth um, writ large um, in the Far East in this period. So when we think about the war against Japan, I imagine a lot of people have in mind things like Pearl Harbor, Midway, Iwo Jima, which predominantly involved the US. So what are the main campaigns where the British and Commonwealth forces are fighting? Okay, so there are, there's a very, in fact, the longest campaign really the British and Commonwealth armies engage in during the war takes place in Burma. And there's a very depressing, upsetting campaign that takes place at the start of the, the whole thing in December 1941 to February 1942 in Malaya and Singapore. And those are really the two the two main areas where Britain is is fighting in this period. Now, I guess if we bring in the Australians, um, 
They're engaged massively around New Guinea, fighting alongside the Americans. But in the kind of the, the traditional way we think about it, yes, um, we're thinking about Burma and we're thinking about Malaya. And as you've already alluded to, when we're talking about British, we really mean British Empire and Commonwealth troops. I wonder if you could give us a sense of what the composition of these armies was. What percentage were British as opposed to, say, Indian, African? Incredibly diverse um, armies. I mean, the vast majority are Indian soldiers. Um, the Indian army is designed to defend the subcontinent from invaders. Um, so it's Indian troops, the rank and file, making up the, the, the largest proportion. You have British formations and many British officers within Indian units. You have East African and West African formations. And you also have um, kind of local levies from Malaya or Burma or elsewhere. So they're astonishingly diverse, complex human organizations with different cultures, different expectations, multiple languages, different dietary needs, um, really astonishing. And uh, this is a time when the British Empire is, is definitely beginning to creak, particularly somewhere like India. It's only two years from partition. At this, well, by the end of the war, it's only two years from partition. So was it difficult to persuade imperial subjects to fight for the British at this time? I think that's that's one of the big stories um, to come out of this period, which is if you're if you're an ordinary Indian, um, a large proportion of them didn't really want to be part of the British Empire anymore. And in this great crisis, they're being asked to do multiple things. In, in on one side, the British, the Raj, British India is asking ordinary Indians to mobilise in this great crisis to try and address the assault of Japan and support Britain in its war with Germany and Italy in Europe. On the other side, you have nationalists within India saying, well, this is, this is the greatest opportunity we've ever had. This is our opportunity to get rid of the British and have a country of our own. So they've been pulled in different directions. And that creates, that creates challenges, creates friction, it creates uncertainty. And throughout the war, Britain is forced to garrison India in many ways. I think at one stage, there's something like the equivalent of 10 infantry divisions in India quelling rebellion, quelling unrest, you know, individuals who would be much needed elsewhere in the war. So it's it's a complex, fractured, kind of ugly scenario. Um, not the clear one and zero, black and white, good versus evil narrative we're so used to when we talk about the Second World War. And am I right to say that Japan actually did try and ferment dissatisfaction within the British Empire, but ultimately failed really to succeed in that goal? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately did fail. Um, so I suppose wisely it, to try and destroy the enemy within, kind of the fifth column narrative, to sow the seeds uh, of dissent and unhappiness. The um, Indian National um, Army was created out of Indian POWs from, for example, Malaya and elsewhere. And many of them were uh, held, you know, strong and profound uh, nationalist um, sentiments. Others simply wanted to get out of awful conditions that were um, prevalent in Japanese POW camps. Um, but there's no doubt an attempt is made to to try and sow discord. And in some ways, you know, the Axis, you know, the Axis starts the war and makes its calculations based on an assumption that the West is kind of weak, that imperialism is creaking, as you as you suggest, that the cohesion that might have held together the empire in the past was no longer there. And they had a sense that there was weakness that could be tapped into and attacked. 
And to an extent, they're right, right? I mean, the empire fractures pretty badly um, in the early years of the war. Um, you know, it's 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 not a pretty story in Malaya. It's not a pretty story in Burma in 1941 and 1942. There's large numbers of individuals who, who disappear into the jungle, who don't put up a, a, a great fight. Um, and in part, that comes back to your previous questions. You know, what are they fighting for? Is an Indian fighting for the British Empire? An Indian might not feel a very strong affiliation with the British Empire. Is the Indian fighting for an opportunity to create a new India? It, this wasn't clear. And if you're asking people to sacrifice their one and only life, you better give them a good, a, a good cause to fight for, right? And so that uncertainty percolates. It filters through the Indian army and creates, you know, a an atmosphere ripe for the fifth column, ripe for infiltration, and ripe ultimately for poor military performance in the early years at least. And, and coming on to poor military performance, the early campaigns against Japan were pretty disastrous, and probably the best known would be the fall of Singapore. What what do you put those reverses down to? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complex old um, problem. There are component parts to it. So we can certainly talk about uh, a lack of numbers at times. We can talk about inadequate technology and weapons. We can talk about poor doctrine or a poor intellectual approach to the problems of, of modern warfare. And we can talk also about issues such as morale and cohesion. On the whole, as I see it at least, you know, doctrine wasn't that bad. We had some smart people you know, running the country in the interwar years. They weren't all fools, which is sometimes the, the simple narrative that is created. Um, we had smart people running the armed forces, and they had some reasonable ideas about how to fight a modern war, not that dissimilar from um, the Axis in many ways. Um, technologically, weren't so bad. I mean, could have had more. Um, we could have had more troops, but there were sufficient troops, more troops indeed than the Japanese had in, in Malaya in, in 1941 and 1942. So so my sense is a lot of it comes down to this to this morale issue in a way. So the armies aren't perfectly prepared, but they're not terribly prepared. And those who are in charge of strategy make a basic calculation. The poor bloody infantry, the ordinary British and Commonwealth soldier will buy time as the empire mobilizes its economies, mobilizes the people for this great conflict. And they're shocked when, when the poor bloody infantry, when the ordinary Indian, the ordinary Australian, the ordinary Brit, the ordinary West African and East African doesn't sell their life dearly on the battlefield. And so strategy is broken in a sense. They relied on the ordinary person and the ordinary person kind of looked back and said, to what end? Why Why should I give up my life um, in this cause? You need to persuade me better. So I think, you know, that those dynamics we talked about earlier on about the, the cohesion of the empire, hard to measure things like morale and attitudes mattered in a way um, that had profound consequences for the future of the empire and, and the disasters, yes, that took place in Malaya and Burma and elsewhere. And following these disasters, how close would you say the British and Empire forces came to a complete collapse? There is an astonishing, I mean, we, while we talk about the, the weakness of the empire in 1941, the way it seems to be on the verge of total collapse, at the same stage, the empire is strong in other ways, right? So the cohesion that maybe held it together at one stage is fracturing, but in other ways it is technologically astonishingly powerful. Um, the empire's ability to harness economies, and trade and produce weapons upon weapons um, alongside its friend and ally, the United States, is quite extraordinary. So 
you know, historians in particular like to talk about the drama, right, to kind of create a story. In some ways, you know, Britain had enough friends, enough economic strength, enough expertise, politically, economically, industrially, militarily, to right the wrong, to, to, to pull it back. So while, yes, Britain was weak, and Britain and its empire was weak in one sense, we must not forget the extraordinary strengths of what was a superpower um, in this period as well. Now, following the reverses at places like Singapore, a large number of British and Empire forces were taken into Japanese captivity. Could you tell us a little bit about the kind of conditions they would then endure? I mean, appalling beyond belief, really. I mean, a lack of proper food, a lack of proper medicine, exhausting work, um, you know, absent family and easy attachment and communication with. I mean, I think if you were to define hell, it wouldn't be far from it. Um, and it is a miracle in many ways that so many returned and that so many returned and were able to live ordinary lives afterwards. Um, wars, full stop, are awful, horrible, dreadful things. Wars fought in that way are worse again. So it, it, it was appalling. Um, and in many, indeed, as we well know, did not come back, or did not come back, certainly in mind as well. Now, as you alluded to earlier, the British Empire forces actually managed to complete an astonishing transformation in its fortunes, particularly in Burma. And you've already mentioned the kind of logistical strength of the empire, but what do you see as the other key factors in turning the tide? This is where the you know the really wonderful, interesting, dramatic story I think really starts to emerge. And um, so, a series of awful defeats, which would have floored you know. 99 out of 100 competitors, you could argue. Um, and Britain does get back on its feet. Britain and the empire does get back on its feet. And I think the first thing that takes place is, is, is a, a moment of reflection and honesty, which takes a lot of um, emotional and intellectual courage to say, yes, we, we got absolutely hammered and we've no one to blame but ourselves. And there's a series of conferences and committees that are convened to think about, reflect and create new ways to fight. So there's an intellectual problem that has to be solved and in a very significant way, it is. And a great credit is due to those individuals who were involved. And then there was a requirement to think about these emotional issues, you know, morale, um, connection with empire. Um, you know, British authorities recognised the disconnect between um, the reality on the ground and what they hoped in terms of ideological conviction. And they started to put in place educational programmes to teach, to suggest to encourage you know okay you might not be sure about the empire but look what the alternative is here and actually the empire does x and y which isn't so bad so you know a real effort to try and inculcate some ideological conviction in amongst indian troops who were the majority amongst british troops who who felt really let down in many ways you know they were fighting for a country that clearly didn't want them to be there so how how do you get individuals to do that you know risk your life now to save india so that we can give india back to the Indians when the war is over. I mean, that's not a that calculation in the mind of a young man um, who, quite frankly, wants to go home is, is a difficult one. So again, it, there are efforts to try and inculcate morale in that way, to recognise also something, you know, that was really fundamental, that in this great crisis, individuals, yes, understood that there was a global problem, but ultimately it only mattered in the context of their own lives. So, you know, we're all living through a crisis now, Right. Um, our lives haven't stopped. I still have a family that I have to provide for. 
And I think sometimes we look back at the past in the Second World War in particular and think, well, that must have been simple. Clear, evil enemy. Everybody stopped for five years, worked together, got the job done and then returned to their lives. It wasn't like that at all. You know, lives continued. Um, wives and husbands still had arguments. They still had hopes for the future. They still have kids who maybe didn't do as well at school or elsewhere and they were worried about it. And so the army quite reflectively tried to improve welfare amenities, tried to improve you know, regularity of mail, the way um, you know, families were looked after back home. And this, you know, this was for all soldiers of, of all kind of traditions and cultures. And so gradually the emotional problems start to be overcome alongside like, the intellectual ones. And then there's, as far as I see it, you know, Rob, one kind of final really important piece to the puzzle, which is training. So you, know, you can understand the problem as, as well as you want, but you have to then go out and experiment and see whether your intellectual approach actually meets reality. And so they trained and they trained and they trained again and they refined approaches as a consequence of training. And individuals learned how to live, fight, survive in the jungle, which was an appalling climate, right? Very difficult place to fight. And when all those bits and pieces were put together, you were left with a really quite effective fighting force. And they start to grapple their way back in slowly but surely learn, develop confidence. They're given, the army's given goals that they can achieve and they build confidence. And by 1944 and 1945, my goodness, you have a fighting force that is, I think, by any standards, impressive. And how much credit would you give to General Slim for the transformation in the East? Yeah, I mean, he's the he's the one we all know, isn't he? I mean, I think by all accounts, a, a very impressive human being, very emotionally intelligent, Um. So, you know, we, especially academics have a tendency to seek academic answers to military problems, intellectual answers. And they look at doctrine, they look at technique. Slim fully understood the human element of the problem. And in that way, his contribution to turning around, you know, defeat into victory, as he put it, um, you know, is almost incalculable. And I guess for all of us in all parts of our lives, that ability to, yes, be technical masters of our trades, while at the same time recognizing that we exist in the human universe, we need to enthuse, encourage, understand frailties, build on weaknesses and turn them into strengths. His ability to do all that was extraordinary. So I think, yes, central, wise, brave, uh, intelligent, and ultimately successful man. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The war is, is, is like one runner handing over the baton to another. If Britain starts the war in empire, uh, you know, a superpower, the superpower, it doesn't end the war like that. You know, the Americans have, have taken over that mantle alongside the um, Soviet Union. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Now, when we're talking about the war in Europe, Churchill's role is, is constantly being discussed and, and generally in quite positive terms. How much influence does Churchill have on what's going on in the East? I mean, he's influenced in, in all parts of, of the war. I mean, he probably takes more criticism in his handling of the war in the East. Um, it is often said that he, you know, had profoundly racist views towards India and Indians. Um to an extent, he found it very hard to understand why the armies weren't performing better. Um, and he he takes he takes part of the blame, I think, in a very in a very real way. So if if you if you if you buy my approach, which is that the emotional side really matters, that you had to bring people along on the journey and create a vision for the future, you know, Churchill didn't want to let India go. Um, and yet, it became clear over time promising Indians something, a different future than that which they had at the start of the war became important in convincing them to fight. And so you had a, a grand leader who didn't want to, to promise that future and you had a rank and file who wanted that future. So there was, a, there was a bit of a disconnect, I think. And I mean, listen, Churchill is a remarkable man. No one's going to take that away from him. No one's going to take away the contribution he made to Britain and its history in that period. But, you know, it's not a one and a zero. It's not a black and a white. Um, in some ways, he wasn't a man of the ordinary people. I mean, how could he have been considering uh, his youth and the way he, he grew up? Um, and by not fully, fully grasping the revolutionary moment that was the Second World War, the need to change, to enthuse, um, he perhaps missed a trick and left... The, the soldiers somewhat less motivated, perhaps, than they might have been. Now, looking at the nature of the fighting in in the Eastern Theatre, particularly as you were talking about jungle warfare, what kind of experience was that like, and how different was that from those who were fighting in the West? It, it's nasty. Um, the The terrain is appalling, mountainous, jungle, hot, um, insects disease and um, it's the last place really you you want to end up putting loads of human beings um, and, and trying to get them to fight so it's a challenge and a very different approach is required um, to face that challenge than that which took place in in europe as as as, as you suggest so you know, the, the disasters that are happening in the east are also happening in the west at the at the start of the war and there's a process there where a gentleman called bernard montgomery who no doubt you are and all the listeners will be aware of, he he kind of takes a grip and he puts in place a very um, kind of centralised command and control arrangement. So he, he centres all decisions effectively in a simple way on, on himself. 
So he recognizes that the army isn't brilliantly trained. He recognizes that the army doesn't have high levels necessarily of motivation in this period. And so he fights in, a, in an organized, um, materially focused, structured way. And that works right in, the, say, in a desert where very open you can use machinery and artillery to, to hammer an enemy. Much harder to do that, say, in a jungle, right? Where you can't see your enemy. Um, in fact, you can't actually see your own friends. I mean, so, you know, the slit hole, the guy in a slit hole a few meters away is invisible to you. And so the requirement in those conditions is for a much greater emphasis on individual creativity, ingenuity, and decision-making. You have to devolve command and control and decision-making to the, the lowest level, in effect, which requires a much higher level of training and understanding. So there's a different solution to the problem in the East. Uh, arguably, it's a harder thing to, to do, you know, to enthuse everybody, to train everybody, um, to allow everybody to make decisions. And in a way, that's why it is such an extraordinary transformation, because they were able, they were able to do that. So a very different narrative emerges in the East, I think, than that which emerges in the West. And do we know how the British and Empire forces viewed the Japanese soldiers they were fighting against? We have a good idea. Um, hatred, I, I, in a way, I saddened you know, to use kind of words like that. But there, there was clearly a, a lack of kind of cultural, I think, understanding of each other. This, Japanese soldiers seemed alien um, in terms of the way they behaved on the battlefield, their willingness to take extraordinary casualties their brutality. Um, and in many ways, the war became one without sympathy, without empathy. Prisoners of war were often killed rather than put in cages. And we've already talked earlier about the fact that the British forces were made up of people from many different nationalities. Were there any tensions there around things like race, ethnicity and nationality? Yeah, I mean... These, in many ways, are racist armies um, in a period of profound racism. Um, Indian soldiers are looked down upon by British soldiers. Um, for much of the war, certainly the first half, again, say Indian officers don't have equal pay. Indian officers don't have the right to discipline British soldiers. Um, there are you know, few Indian officers in an Indian army. Now, that changes over the course of the war. And in many ways, you know, one of the the key elements of this extraordinary transformation we've already talked about is a, is a cultural transformation. And the army becomes more inclusive, more aware of these inequalities and the effect that they are having on individuals, you know, on, on human beings. And it takes reflection and um, a bit of courage to recognize that these processes are, are, are wrong for a hundred reasons and they start to fix it. And that plays into, you know, morale and so, you know, there isn't there isn't a silver bullet, right? There's a there's a huge number of initiatives and things taking place across um, these forces, and they all add up eventually to to creating a better trained, a better um, motivated, and a, a more professional armed forces. Now, ultimately, Japan was defeated by two atom bombs dropped by by the United States. So, how far, therefore, could we say that the British and Empire forces contributed to that victory? The war in the East is is dominated by the Americans in many ways. Um, at the same time, you know, 
the, the battles that you know you could say that Imphal and Kohima, which take place in 1944, these transformative battles were really British and Commonwealth forces for the first time really winning major um, major offensives in the east. You know th- those are against big Japanese armies. Um, in many ways, some historians have described them as the worst defeats the Japanese armed forces have ever experienced. Okay, so you're you're attriting a Japanese army that is spread out all across Asia, and this this does have implications over time. It's denying Japan access to certain resources and manpower that they might need elsewhere. Um, so Britain is playing its its part. It's playing its part in trying to open up access to China so that the Chinese forces fighting the Japanese can be supplied and continue to wear down the Japanese armies there. But yes, I mean, the Americans, you would have to argue, are playing a, a dominating role. And that's part of the, that's part of the story in, 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 in a different way, Rob, because the war is, is, is like one runner handing over the baton to another. If Britain starts the war in empire, uh, you know, a superpower, the superpower, it doesn't end the war like that. You know, the Americans have, have taken over that mantle alongside the um, Soviet Union. And that has profound consequences for the world post-1945, the world that, you know, and consequences we're still living with, frankly. And do we know what the responses were of the British and Commonwealth forces to this victory, and particularly, I suppose, the unusual way that it occurred? Yeah, it came as a surprise, right? Um, the, the existence of the atom bombs are largely... Secret, um, and so there's a sense of joy. Clearly, obviously, um, the war is over. Thank God. Um, a bit of an anticlimax because it doesn't come at the end of a great, of a great offensive or battle, or you know. So it's hard for the individuals to take you know, personal, immediate personal pride in what happened. But it is interesting how quickly then that surprise uncertainty, elation, then turns to frustration and immediately horizons collapse in on, on themselves. And they think, well, okay, I want to out of here. Um, I've just lost X number of years of my life. I want to go home. I want to see my family, my friends, my kids, if that's what they had. And so the war, it's, it's a mix of feelings of happiness, of frustration, of wanting to go home. Um, not to, you know, not the clear one and zero, not the clear, obvious, just pure elation that we might see in a movie. Um, a much messier intermingling of the personal, the national, and the geopolitical. And I guess for a lot of these people, they didn't go home for quite a long time afterwards, did they? No, um, demobilization took years. Um, many forces got involved in kind of the cleanup post-Japanese surrender, the management of Malaya and Burma as, as attempts are made and somehow to reconstruct some form of sensible imperial construct. Um, so it, it could be a long, painful, um, boring process for many of them, or terrifying if they got involved in um, in various uh, efforts to, to stop nascent nationalist movements so yes um a frustrating period um for, for many now i've seen this the burma campaign described as the last hurrah of the british empire or certainly of the military forces of the british empire does that does that make sense to you as a view oh i mean there are different views on when the empire ends um you know is 45 
the definitive nail in the coffin? Is there a kind of is there an effective extra attempt to keep going in, in the decades following to maintain empire? Um, I mean, for me, I, I do see it as as a definitive nail in the coffin. Really, um, it becomes untenable. Britain is bankrupted um, emotionally as well as um, economically as a consequence of the war. Um, unfortunately, the the inability of the, of the kind of the forces to win a quick to win quickly to avoid building up masses of debt um, to maintain prestige means that the world just looks totally different in 1945 for Britain and its empire than it did in 1939 and 1940. So I think we have to try and conceive of the war as this astonishing revolutionary moment where everything is changed. Britain has to enthuse and mobilise its people for a second great global war and this has costs and the costs um, really put a hole in British power um, and the vision for an imperial future. And then in the subsequent decades, what was it like for these soldiers trying to return to normal life? And did they feel that they were living in the shadow of those who'd fought in Europe? Gosh, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, Individuals' rights will obviously experience it in many different ways. I mean, I think for a long time, those who fought in the Far East felt forgotten, felt that they hadn't been part of the central story. And, you know, even today, right, the story for Britain, as you kind of touched on at the very start, uh, Rob, is about the war against Germany and the defeat of Nazism. That is simple. It has an easy narrative of good versus evil, whereas the war in the East is full of complexity and messiness and uncertainty. So I think, yes, there was a sense of, of frustration. And, 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 you know, I'd like you know, to come back to kind of what I, what I think is a, is a wave of you know, wonderful scholarship on, on this, in this space, talking about kind of cultural issues, military issues, social issues, decolonization. There's a lot of good stuff out there. If listeners want to engage with it. Um, so if they were forgotten in 1945 and in those decades, they, they, they are not forgotten now. Um, okay, well, I think I've been through everything that I was going to ask you, but was there anything we haven't touched upon that you think we really ought to discuss? I, I think we've, I think we've touched. I mean, you know, to, to kind of hit again, what you know, for me, what are the the, the key points? Um, you know, the war is an emotional as well as a technological challenge. How do you mobilize people to sacrifice, to fight, not just for a short period, but for an extended period? And as we live through a crisis of our own, I'm getting tired, Rob. Um, I'm sure you are. And we're only, what, four months in? Now, a war that lasts six years, at least in the European sense, longer for China and Japan. How do you keep people going? How do you find meaning in sacrifice? Um, how do you make huge global events make sense for individuals? Um, that, that aspect of the problem, I think, um, I hope has, has, come, has come through. And I think then there's the honesty, which I think, you know, Roundly beaten, no way to kind of put a silver lining on it, really. Uh, and, and a bunch of human beings recognised that and were honest enough to say we got hammered. Now let's try and fix it. And I think in all of our lives, you know, we all have moments where things don't go as we wish. And I think, you know, that's a great example of, of how to, to turn disaster into victory. Um, and so in that sense, it's a cracking story, something we can all learn from. And in many ways, you know, something that Britain can be proud of. That was Jonathan Fennell. As mentioned before, you can read his article in the September issue of BBC History magazine. 
which is on sale now and also includes pieces on Edward the Confessor, medieval manuscripts, the history of Freemasons and the origins of the Trump presidency. Meanwhile, Jonathan's book, Fighting the People's War, The British and Commonwealth Armies and the Second World War, is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for another lecture from our History Weekends on the deadly training for D-Day.